I find it quite interesting to note that looking around us, whether it is in Norway or in the U.S., that everybody has a specific worldview, how they view the world. There are certain questions that almost every person from every nation has asked in the past and will ask in the future. Questions like, who am I? Why am I here? Is there any meaning to this life? Is there a God? These are, these are deep questions that many people have. And I think this is a question that everybody either explicitly or implicitly asks themselves. The great church father Augustine wrote that God made us for himself and that our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. And we, we really see this as we look at our world. We see people worshipping things other than God. People with restless hearts seeking rest for their souls. Worshipping things outside of the God we worship leading to more restlessness. And as we turn to Psalm 8 this morning, we read about the magnificent and glorious God in whom we as humans are supposed to find rest for our souls in. And so we move away from the first seven psalms. You'll remember Psalm 3 to 7 was lament psalms. Many of you in the last few weeks have come to be like, David is so negative in these psalms. Why is he he's lamenting, crying, weeping before the Lord in these psalms? And so Psalm 8 this morning is a psalm and, or a hymn of creation praise. It's, it would be quite fitting, perhaps, if this psalm finds its origin as David, a young shepherd, lies under the sky, looking after the sheep in the field, gazing into the majestic night sky and just meditating on his God. Perhaps lying in the field during the day, just seeing the clouds, the sun, just everything around him so much bigger than him that he meditates on Genesis 1 and 2. As we read the psalm, we see Genesis 1 and 2 really coming to the fore. As David speaks about creation, humanity's position in God's creation, how we are the caretakers of God. Yet I want us to see today, as Hebrews teaches us, that this psalm is not only speaking about Adam and creation and humanity's position in all of creation, but it speaks about the second Adam. The second Adam who will come and make all things right. He who will come and correct the things which caused us to fall into sin in the first place. So today, like last week, we'll see two important images of God. Last week, you'll remember, we saw that God is both the refuge for His people, yet He's also a judge. How God is both a safe place, yet a dangerous place. And this morning, we will see today that God is not only the creator of all things, but He's also the caretaker of all things. He's not just the creator who created everything and just lets it be, as many people would think, but that God is sovereignly and intimately involved in his creation still. So our sermon title this morning is Sing Praise to the Majestic Creator and Caretaker of the World. Sing Praise to the Majestic Creator and Caretaker of the World. So follow with me in your Bibles in Psalm 8. Before we get to the main points of our sermon, I would like to point you to the fact that the first verse and the last verse are identical. Both verse 1 and verse 9 reads, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And I think there's a reason for this. David wants us to understand this entire psalm 
with this truth in mind, that the Lord's name is majestic. So what is the name of the Lord? When we look at the name of the Lord that's majestic and forms the foundation for the psalm, what is it that we think about? And this is where our English translations really aren't that good, because in English we see, O Lord, our Lord. But in the Hebrew we read, O Yahweh, which is the divine name of the Lord, our Lord. You'll see that the Lord is spelled in all capitals, and the second Lord is spelled with a capital L, and the rest is small letters. So essentially what David is saying is, O Yahweh, our Lord. He is expressing his adoration of the divine name of God. And why is this? Well, firstly, the divine name of God tells us that God, in the way that he expressed and revealed himself to Moses, is not a hidden God. The fact that God's name is known means that God reveals himself and has revealed himself to his people. So as we move away from the Lament Psalms where David speaks about God's hiddenness, God's face being turned away from David, David experiencing the absence of God, the fact that David knows God's name and can meditate on how God has revealed himself means that God is not a hidden or obscure God. God is known, has made himself known, and has revealed himself to his people. The name of God is also an extension of God himself, where God chooses to dwell. In the Old Testament, remember, God dwells among his people in the temple. So when we speak about God's name, it tells us who God is, who his people are, and where God chooses to dwell and make himself known. And David reflects on this. But we see that God's name is not only on the earth, the, maj the majesty of his name is not only in the earth, but he has set his glory above the heavens. So what David is saying is that the earth, which is the lowest part, and heaven, which is the highest part, which are the two extremes in God's creation, is filled with his name, is filled with the majesty and glory of his name. So as David is meditating, perhaps lying under the moon or sitting in the sun, David is standing in awe of God, standing in awe of how God has revealed himself both to David as well as to the people of God that comes before David. So the psalm starts and ends with a reflection on the majesty and glory of God. And throughout the psalm, we are to keep this majesty and glory in our minds. And how do we do this? Well, David tells us. David says in our first point today, which I've titled, Praise Coming from the Mouths of Babes. Praise Coming from the Mouths of Babes. In this, David tells us how we are to glorify and give God the majesty. It's the fact that we should honor and sing praises to this glorious God. We are called to worship God. As you remember, a few weeks ago I said that we are inherently worshipping beings. Humans are worshipping beings. We worship something. Everybody worships something. And let us worship this God today as we reflect on who He is. It's interesting when we look at this text. It's not from the mouths of kings, the mouths of great Jewish people, that God has established a stronghold. It's from the mouths of infants and nursing babies. The greatness of creation proclaims God's majesty, as we've seen, but also the cry of an infant or the in un, 
on misunderstandings or weird words that you might hear from a small child. Both the greatness of creation as well as the babblings of a young infant points to the majesty of God. And here we see two types of small children. We see both toddlers as well as nursing children. Both of them are particularly dependent on others for food and care. Many of you are parents here. You'll know both babies, but also toddlers. If you just leave them, it won't turn out well. So the psalmist uses this image of vulnerability and dependence to create this contrast between the power of those who oppose God, God's enemies, and God's faithful ones, God's people. God chooses those who are, you can call it, without power, or those who have seemingly no power to make His glory known. He's able to build the innocent weakness of these dependent babies, those who are dependent on others, into a powerful opposition against these enemies. It's also not just the fact that babies are dependent on others. It's also, we see that although there is no direct mention made of speech, the psalmist is speaking about being glorifying, worshipping God. So the unschooled babblings of very young children can also be an unexpected source of praise to God, our Creator. And it might seem strange that God seeks to build His stronghold through the mouths of babies and toddlers. But David tells us why. And we see throughout the New Testament why. Paul tells us something similar in 1 Corinthians 1, when he says that not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many were powerful. Not many noble of birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one may boast in His presence. We see this in the New Testament. We see this in the Old Testament as well. God chooses the most unlikely, the most insignificant, to make His glory known. From the mouths of babies and toddlers will come the praises of God. Jesus Himself said this in Matthew 21. When He spoke to the chief priests and scribes, The people shouted, Hosanna to the King of David. And he said to them, Do you hear what they are saying, speaking to the chief priests and scribes? And Jesus said to them, Have you never heard out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? Again, Jesus using Psalm 8, pointing to himself. When the chief priests and scribes come to him and they, they speak about the people praising God, Jesus says to them, Yes, I know. Even out of the mouths of toddlers and nursing babies, will come the praises due to me. And so as we reflect on this first point, how God will be glorified even by the babblings of toddlers or the cries of babies, we who have minds and mouths who can rightly praise God, why do we do that so little? Why do we not glorify God with our prayers, our songs, our words? We as God's people are called to glorify and praise Him. Out of the mouths of babes and toddlers, He will be praised. Let that not be said of us that we who are able to praise Him with our minds, with our mouths, with our deeds, did not do that. And the praise of God only came from the mouths of toddlers and babies. Our second point then, 
God the creator and caretaker of all things. So follow with me in verse 3. David says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? David comes now to this paradox of man's insignificance in this big creation and God's bigness, but also the status that God has given humanity, that in this big creation, God would give attention and care to specks of dust like us. I mean, if this isn't reason to proclaim and glorify God, I don't know what is. But as we meditate on this, God created the whole universe. And yet, for small humans on earth, God chose to reveal himself. And David uses really beautiful language to speak about creation. He says that it is the work of your fingers. It's almost as if God is an artist using paint, using his fingers to paint the earth. And it's your heavens, your fingers, it's God's possession. I really like this image used by David since even in the Hebrew we see this creative power of God. David is really speaking about God as an artistic sort of creator, that God is using his hands, the works of his hand and his fingers to create that which we see. And for many of you here, you're not natives to Norway, so I think the beauty of Norway would be even more magnificent to you. But as you hike Prekestulen or any of the great hikes around us, this is the work of God's fingers. This is God's artwork. This is the God that we worship. It goes beyond our ability to understand, really. I mean, how long has Prekestulen been there? Well, since, since the creation of the world, it's been there. Humans come and go, yet the moon and the stars and the creation is still here. I mean, we, we fail to, to show up for work. Our days are numbered, yet God created things, ordained their existence and their appearance, and they are still there. The things which God created are, are almost as steadfast as His. Yet, verse 4 shows us that even though he created the big things. He cares for the little things. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? I think as we come to this and we sort of put our mind into the mind of David, many times we've stood, and I think Prakastilin is a really good example, as you stand between the vastness of the mountains, you feel yourself dwarfed by everything around you. It's easy to see how small we are. And it makes it very difficult to comprehend that God, who is able to create all of the great and big things around us, would give us dominion and give us the authority to take care of those things. David here is driven by his experience of God's creation. David's awe of God and his awe of man's position in creation should be understood by his meditation of what God has created. And so next time when you go on a hike or next time when you see something beautiful in nature, let us be of the same mind. Let us not just enjoy nature for what it is, but let us stand in awe and gratefulness that the God who created everything still cares for us. 
I mean, even the particular word in Hebrew used by David describes our weakness and frailty. The word here is enos, which it's not used often in the Old Testament, but in the times that it's used, it usually refers to a person who is very weak, a person who is very frail, a time before a person dies or a time before a person is sick. So David is saying, as he reflects on creation, as he meditates on the bigness of everything around him, he's aware of his own human frailty. He is aware of his own smallness in God's creation. And this is the picture David wants us to see. At the heart of this psalm, it's this. God is the creator of the big things, as well as the small things. And he takes care of both. He is mindful and he cares about us as his human creation. Infinite God cares for finite man. The God who created the big things also cares for the little things. You and I. He is mindful of us. He is attentive to us. He has not forgotten us. And I think it is most clear when we look at the gospel. When we look at Christ and the work of Christ. How easy it would have been for God to just reject us as humans. I mean, how sinful we are. We have killed the Son of God. It would be so easy for God to just forget about us and reject us. Yet, He has not. He has sent His Son to die for us. That we may enjoy eternity with Him. So if you're sitting here today and you feel forgotten, you feel that God has overlooked you, you feel that you're not being heard in your prayers, reflect on this, that God would send His only Son to die for you. He not only created you, but He really cares for you. The cross is the only reason that, and the only thing you have to look for to have proof of this. The cross proves that God cares for us, His people. Thirdly then, humans are God's rulers on earth. Humans are God's rulers on earth. So, as I noted, David looks back at Genesis 1 and 2. You see the imagery and the words of Genesis really reflected in the psalm. And so as David looks back at Genesis, he reflects and he says, You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and have placed all things under his feet. Here we find the proper perspective of who we are as God's people, as humans. We are set apart from the animal world. We draw dignity from God. We're made a little less than the heavenly beings. And there's a bit of ambiguity on how this can be translated. Some translations say a little lower than the angels. The ESV says a little lower than the heavenly beings. Some say a little lower than yourself. But the point here is that we are described as a little lower than those in the heavenly realm. Not a little higher than the animals. Modernity and this world would like us to believe that we as humans are just slightly better than animals. We are just slightly more evolved than the rest of creation. But God says that we're not just slightly better than the rest of creation. We're just a little lower than the heavenly beings. 
And further than that, we're not just a little lower than the heavenly beings. We are God's vice regents or those who rule with God, with his delegated authority on earth. And how do we know this? Well, we're crowned with glory and honor. This glory and honor should shape how we see humanity and how we understand what it means to be human. Now, I'm sure all of you know what it means to be crowned. Many of us watched the the crowning of King Charles a few weeks ago. But essentially, when a crown is placed on the head of a prince or the head of a king, it gives them some sort of authority. But here we're not only crowned with authority, we're crowned crowned with glory and honor. The same words used to speak about God's glory, which we are supposed to worship. So God doesn't only give us His authority, but because we're created in God's image, we are crowned with His glory and His honor. Now, I know some people use this to say that we're just, you know, we're little gods. We're, we have the same glory and the same authority as God. That's not exactly what we're saying here. What we are saying, though, is that our authority as humans comes from God. We don't have our own authority. Our glory, which comes from God, is God's glory, which He placed upon us as we're created in His image. So when the psalmist describes God as crowning humans with glory, the implication is that through our unique relationship with God, we come to share in His image. We're created in His image. And this would shape everything we know and aspire to be as humans, as humanity. One commentator wrote this, and I think this gets to the heart of these verses. He states that it is nevertheless humanity's privilege and duty to look upward to the angels and beyond the angels to God in whose image woman and man have been made, rather than downward to the beasts. The result is that they become increasingly like God rather than increasingly beast-like in their behavior. But here is the sad thing. Although made in God's image and ordained to become increasingly like God to whom they look, men and women have turned their backs on God. And since they will not look upward to God, which is their privilege and duty, they look downward to the beasts and so become increasingly like them. And this is what we see. Instead of looking to God and becoming like Him, our society have turned their backs on God and we're increasingly becoming like the beasts. And this is why when we read about Christ, He tells us that as we gaze upon Christ, as we look to Christ, we will be made like Him. As we gaze upon Christ, we will become like Him. We will share in the image of Christ. And this will cause us to be radically persecuted and rejected by this world. Since this world looks to something else and becomes more like the beasts, becomes more like that which does not resemble Christ, us who bear the name of Christ and shares in the image as we gaze upon Him will start to become looking radically different from this world. We should expect persecution and rejection in a world that rejects Christ. I find it quite interesting in light of this, us as humans being God's crown jewel and sharing in His authority, that this world has a very anti-human agenda. Now, whether it's telling people that they shouldn't have children, 
or whether it's telling humans that we're just a plague on the earth causing immense pollution and that we should stop, you know, with causing pollution, stop having children in order to preserve the earth. The truth we see in this world that there's a clear anti-human agenda. And the reality is you cannot glorify God and worship Him when you reject and despise His creation, especially His crown jewel. That means you cannot dismember the unborn and glorify God. It means you cannot tell masses of people that mutilating their bodies is a good thing and at the same time glorifying God. You cannot celebrate lifestyles that do not lead to human flourishing and glorify God. And we see this society constantly seeking to undermine humanity and its place on this earth and telling us that it's somehow good. We as Christians should stand against this. If we want to glorify God, we need to take His word seriously. We are a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned with glory and honor. And we shouldn't lose this perspective. And if we do, well, then we devolve into nothing more than machines or animals, neither of which has inherent value, dignity, or even worth. We are also told that we're not only God's crown jewel. We're not only God's image bearers. We're also called to be His rulers. We're called to have dominion over the things He created. Drawing from Genesis, David tells us that we are made to rule over the works of God's hands. The same word here for rule is the same word that God uses when it speaks about the authority that man has, husband has in marriage. We are called to use responsibly the authority God has given to us over creation. Unlike the animals, we as humans share in God's divine image. And we have the unique responsibility to take care of the creation, whether it's looking after God's animals, looking after the things around us. This role of responsibility also sets us apart from the rest of creation. This role of responsibility, as well as the fact that we're created in God's image, sets us radically, in fact, apart from the rest of creation. The clear implication of this text tells us that this authority is not some sort of democratically voted authority. We weren't voted into being God's caretakers of the world. No, God has given us His authority. He is the Creator, and He has given us His authority to take care of creation. So what does this mean? It means in the same way that God takes care of us, we are called to take care of everything around us that were created by His hands. This is further seen in the fact that God has placed all things under our feet. The earth is placed under human authority by God, not by human authority. So, if we look at this, we see that this is the way things were in the garden, right? But this is not the way things are. This is not the way things work. This is clearly not the way things are today. The tragedy in reading the psalm and really seeing the glory of God in this is that this is not the world we live in. We do not live in the world of Psalm 8. Tragically, we live in the world of Genesis 3. You know, verses 6 to 8 direct us back to the idyllic scenes that we find in the garden. 
But they also force us to look into the future. Can the fall be reversed? Can paradise lost be paradise regained? Can death be defeated? Can tears be dried up? Can pain and sorrow be no more? Will the day come that all things will indeed be under our feet? And this is where the book of Hebrews is so important. This is where Hebrews 2 says, yes, in quoting Psalm 8, it tells us that all things will be placed under Christ's feet. And as we are His people, by implication, it will be placed under our feet as well. And so, before we become disappointed in reading Psalm 8 and saying, well, this is not how things are, we see that this is the way things will be. We are given hope by Hebrews 2 as we read Psalm 8. And this is why it's so important for us to read both our Old and our New Testaments, since in Hebrews we find a great example of how the Old Testament meaning changes in light of the New Testament. The New Testament gives us a lens by which to understand the Old Testament. The New Testament writers essentially provide us with an inspired inspiration, inspired interpretation of the Old Testament. So what is the author of Hebrews telling us? How are we to understand Psalm 8 in light of Christ? Well, it's simple. The author of Hebrews tells us that we should find ourselves directly in the middle of the psalm. As this psalm looks back at creation, at the way things were before the fall, how God created us, gave us glory and honor, gave us dominion, yet due to sin we lost that. Hebrews tells us you need to look forward as well. Hebrews tells us that yes, you are crowned with glory and honor. Yes, you have been given authority, but Adam failed at the task that God gave him. Yet, if you look forward in hope, the second Adam, Christ, succeeded in the task laid before him. Christ succeeded in doing that which Adam failed to do. Christ managed to be obedient to God in the way that Adam failed to. And Paul also saw a specific application of Psalm 18 Ephesians 1, when he notes that all things will be placed under the feet of Christ. And this all things included the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all things in every way. So what does Paul see in Psalm 8? Well, Paul sees that the last enemy, the last enemy of God's people, the last enemy will be silenced, that we see here in Psalm 8, will be death. Death will be destroyed and all things will be brought under subjection to the Son of God. We will give it all back to the Father from whom it came in the first place. And this is our hope. We stand and await the great and glorious day when paradise lost will indeed be paradise regained. Because of Jesus our Lord. Because of Jesus who willingly laid down his life on the cross. He was given a crown of glory and honor. Even though it was a crown of thorn, he received this crown of glory and honor. And as we are co-heirs with Christ, as we will reign with him one day, his present reign is our future destiny. And so as we reflect on the last verse in the psalm, verse 9, our psalm ends in the same way that it begins. In great and glorious praise 
to God. Yet, there's a subtle difference in the end. At the beginning of our psalm, we saw the magnificence of our Creator God. And at the end, we stand in awe at the unexpected grace that has elevated us to heights of glory and honor and responsibility. In sharing God's image, we are called to share in loving care of all that He has made. This perspective can and must change the way we look at fellow humanity as well as the things which God has created. Meditating on this psalm, Charles Spurgeon wrote, and he captured something beautiful about the psalm when he noted that descend, if you will, into the lowest depths of the ocean where undisturbed the water sleeps and the very sand is motionless and unbroken, quiet. But the glory of the Lord is there, revealing His excellence in the silent palace of the sea. Borrow the wings of the morning and fly to the uttermost parts of the sea. But God is there. Mount to the highest heaven or dive into the deepest howl. And God is justified in terrible vengeance. Everywhere and in every place, God dwells and is manifestly at work. Let's pray.